This is Engage Governance, the podcast series from the Chartered Governance Institute, UK and Ireland. In this podcast, I'm talking to Kerry Round, founding director of Round Governance Services, about IPO governance. Kerry, could you briefly introduce yourself and give our listeners an initial overview of today's topic? Yes, of course. Thank you. And lovely to speak to you today. Um, So as you say, I'm Kerry Round. I founded uh, Round Governance Services um, about four years ago. So when I was approached to do this podcast with you, I thought of some of the questions I've been getting lately from clients and prospective clients. And that's those that are thinking about IPO or at some Mm -hmm some way on their journey for IPO. So I thought it'd be useful today to cover some of the key questions that I get um, relating to IPO governance and um, changes that boards of directors and employees might face. Well, thank you for that introduction, Kerry. Um, That's really useful. Um, So to start off, um, a question that you might have um, from a client, um, is it necessary to change the uh, the current board structure that a company might have um, when you're going into an IPO? Yes, and I'd say almost certainly yes to that one. Um, the Corporate Governance Code, which is the governance standard to which all companies admitted to the London Stock Exchange must comply mm-hmm. or adopt a comply or explain approach, mm-hmm. is pretty prescriptive on what it expects from a board of directors and its committees. Mm-hmm. And so to this end, all companies aiming for admission will have to look really introspectively at its structure mm-hmm. to ensure that it's elevated to meet the expected standard and now that's not to say that we need to ruffle lots of feathers and upset lots Mm. of current board directors but we really do need to think about a number of things including the balance of executive and non-executive directors um, including specific roles and responsibilities Um, and of course a big issue at the moment and I suspect it might be a question later on is diversity Mm. and um, boards are having to really scrutinize its composition on diversity, both in those sort of protected characteristics of gender and ethnicity, mm. but also the wider um, cognitive diversity elements, mm. um, uh, background, skills, experience, mm. etc. So, um, in this context, then, is diversity more of a, a must-have than something that's nice to have? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing people such as institutional investors saying to listed companies, if you do not improve your diversity on your boards, then we will recommend to our to our members that they vote against you at certain resolutions at the AGM. You know, we are seeing the former Hampton Alexander Review, the FTSE Women in Leaders, um, talking about gender and putting quotas for gender, which I've always been against as a, you know, mm. a, a, a young woman. I was always against quotas, but now I really mm. see that until having women on boards in equal numbers is normal, mm. then I think, unfortunately, we need those quotas. Mm. And the same with ethnicity representation, mm. um, for which we've got the, the Parker Review. Uh, the listing rules have also just changed uh, to make it a, a requirement for companies listed on the stock exchange to comply or explain uh, with the diversity quotas. So it won't be a, a topic that um, that companies can choose to ignore now in their annual report on accounts. And you know, if they are not reaching, meeting, talking about their diversity um, on their mm-hmm. boards, then they're going to have to explain why not. Okay. So that's um, that's definitely something to bear in mind when um, 
thinking about an IPO? I think it's really important when boards are looking at, at their diversity to really look at their stakeholders, you know, to look mm. at who are their stakeholders? What are they mm. interested in? What is mm. the company trying to achieve? And is the board reflective of those stakeholders and those stakeholders' yeah. interests? Do they have the skills and experience on the board that they need in order to ensure the long-term sustainable success of the company? Yeah. And in doing so, if it is going out to recruit a new non-executive director, you know, is it automatically going to go to the, the locker room tactics of appointing their white male mm. friend that they play golf with? Or actually, mm. they're going to widen the net so the widest possible selection of people mm. can be considered when f- filling that gap on the board. So it's twofold. It's not just about putting females or putting mm. um people of ethnic minorities on the board it's about making sure that they've got the relevant skills and experience and are also covering those protected characteristics yes absolutely and in thinking about um board composition um in this context if a company already has um, an executive chair a ceo a cfo um, and they want to keep them uh, will this cause any problems Okay, good question. So that's great news that you've got a CEO and a CFO. Mm. And executive directors are generally responsible for the management of the company, Mm. for day-to-day responsibilities, for implementing the decisions of the board. Mm. Executive directors are employees of the company and as such Mm. have a a contract of employment. So by Mm. nature, they are not independent. But in the scenario that you've mentioned, Mm. you've talked about an executive chair. Mm. uh, And that's something that's going to have to be handled carefully. Um, and thought about deeply because Mm. the code tells us that a chair should be independent on appointment. The chair will also be a non-executive director so they will not be an employee of the company Mm. and non-executive directors are instead engaged under letters of appointment. So that's something that if you're thinking about IPO you really might have to think about who within the organisation is going to handle those difficult subjects and those sensitive Mm. subjects. That's not to say there's not a place around the board table for the current executive chair but the current executive chair should not hold the title of chair Mm. Um, upon day one of admission. Okay, um, and I, I believe that's something that investors are quite um, keen on as well. Um, you know, maintaining that independence of the chair. Yes, absolutely. Um, and chairs, of course, are only independent upon appointment. After yeah. that, that after that point of time, they no longer count in the um, independence ratios on your board of directors. So it can get a little bit confusing. <laughs> so um, after an IPO, it sounds like the boardroom is a bit different. Um, is it business as usual or what else is different in the boardroom? I think that's, that's really interesting because we need to remember that, that first and foremost, the company has probably gone to IPO because it wants to, you know, it's got ambitions for continued success. You know, it, it's already got a, a proven business model that's made it successful to the extent that it's got to that point. And those those senior managers, those executive directors that have got that organisation there are, you know, to be commended. Mm. But there will be some things that will have to change and disclosure mm. is a big one of those. And um, having um, that 
or those disclosure requirements clearly articulated in the early stages so that there are no surprises for a board because actually um, you know I'm going to refer to section 1721 statement now which is what section 1721 of the Companies Act 2006 which in itself has not changed since 2006 there has always been the requirement to consider all stakeholders when making board decisions which impact them what has been different um, in more recent years is the requirement to disclose on those section 172 yeah. duties in your annual report and accounts and actually that's something that companies are starting to get right but are still not quite there um we're expecting boards to talk about how they have made decisions in the boardroom that affect mm -hmm. stakeholders but we're expecting them to disclose information on you know the, the pros and cons so balancing out the needs of stakeholders have mm -hmm. they changed a board decision because of um, how it might affect a stakeholder group you know have they not done something because it might affect a stakeholder group or have they done something even though it knows it might negatively affect a stakeholder group if it might positively affect another group and be, and be um, beneficial for the, the company in the long term so there's a lot of details that will have to be disclosed in the report on accounts that mm. um, a non-listed board might not quite be used to doing so. Mm. Um, another thing that might change in the boardroom, some large private companies absolutely have non-executive directors on their board and mm. they, um, whilst they're not listed, they still like to reflect the structure of a listed board. Mm. Um, so for them, they might not find that there's too much of a change around the board table. For others who might suddenly find themselves with non-executive directors on the board, with lots of new faces, mm. um, with new roles, with new divisions of responsibilities, that might take a little bit of settling into. And in my opinion, it's a good chair that will be able to identify whether all of the board members are comfortable, whether all of the board members are being given an opportunity to speak. Mm. I think that the role of the non-executive director is um, increasing in its value year on year, and mm. their role to really um, constructively challenge I'm seeing that happening more and more and I think sometimes the executive directors can feel a little bit like it's them and us and actually it's a it's a board that works together that can see the value of, of all of the individual roles on the board yes absolutely and um, you mentioned about stakeholders um, how would an IPO affect employees um, who are you know quite a large stakeholder for a company yeah, and, and positively, I hope there's no getting away from the fact that for a core group of employees, they are going to be living and breathing the IPO for mm. weeks, months, if not years. Mm. And this is all done alongside their day job. Mm. So, you know, how will they be affected? Well, actually, there's going to be a lot of work, no two ways around it. Mm. But I'd like to think that once the company was listed, that, you know, this is where share plans can come into their own, that there will be um remuneration benefits to employees um i'd like to think that there will be um an expansion of opportunities for current employees who might wish to move upwards sideways into a different role they might find that they've got more opportunities um, within a larger listed environment um and then one thing i think that's that's subtly changed in recent times is the code's requirement to have specific methods of board engagement so this is no longer saying actually the group values the culture of a of a company but the board must value the culture of a company and actually the board themselves must engage with the 
uh, workforce. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, that's not rocket science. You know, that should be done as standard. But mm. for those that are actually being nudged into making sure that that happens, I'd like to think that there's a lot of two-way benefits for that, mm. for the employees to get to know the board, for the board to get to know the employees. You know, and my view is that happier employees are more productive employees. Yeah. So I think that's a really positive change of the code and a positive um, effect for employees. Mm, yes, absolutely. It definitely sounds uh, to be that. Um, and if a company has um, a corporate website, is that something that they'll need to change um, after an IPO or is that not affected? There are lots of disclosure requirements for the mm. website. You know, I think I think everybody's familiar with modern slavery statement must be yeah. one click from the homepage on your on your corporate website. And for most large privates, they have to well, large private companies will have to have that anyway. So hopefully that would be in place. But there's lots of other things on a listed company corporate website that never before would companies have to have had had to have disclosed there needs to be links with the share price for example there needs to be links with the rns newswire system and that's an external um relationship that the company might not have um worked with before um you know the the frc's um guidance on board effectiveness tells us that we should be um putting the role descriptions for the chair the ceo mm -hmm matters reserved for the board and senior independent director mm. on the corporate website you know we need to have our annual returns on the corporate website and there needs to be an archive of those all of the AGM materials so actually there's a lot of change so so for my mind there's two things there there's what do we need to disclose and who's going to be responsible for mm. the corporate website you know where yes. in the organization is this going to land and that's often a difficult one and as I think most of your audience will be company secretaries mm. you know it's it's if we don't know where the job goes it goes to the company secretary <laughs> um and so that's something that i really think needs to be addressed early yeah, doors yeah. um to make sure that you've got the right resources in place but the important thing is that the disclosures are there yeah, um, yeah. and that the company is compliant so thinking about the sorts of policies that you'd need to have um, available on a website or in other um, forums, um, if a company's lawyers have already set out all of those policies, um, including, um, for example, whistleblowing, um, is there anything else that the company needs to do um, or have they got it all covered already? Oh, it'd be great if they did. Um, so in order to attain admission, um, a company will have to demonstrate that it's got a certain number of key policies. Now, I'm not talking about all of your employee-related policies that generally come under a, a HR banner, but I'm talking about board policies and whistleblowing is one of them, you know, anti-bribery and corruption, etc. Um, and it would be great if just having the policy was enough, but actually we need to think, break whistleblowing down. Let, let's take that as an example. We need to break it down. You know, if a employee submits a whistleblowing report firstly they need to know how they're going to do that the code says that they have to have a way of making a whistleblowing report anonymously so question is how are we going to do that so straight away we've got some hows we've got some mm. how is this going to be embedded again i come back to who is going to take responsibility for this mm. are you going to use an external resource to allow you to do the anonymous route of, of making a whistleblowing um, report mm. um, and then let's think about the nature of the whistleblowing report you know whistleblowing is whistleblowing is if if it is of public interest and there are mm. a number of factors that qualify it as being a whistleblowing report 
if, for example, let's take a really wild um, extreme, but if you work for a food manufacturing organization and you, the employee, um, have witnessed somebody putting something bad inside some food, mm. then we've also got, you know, criminal um, repercussions, um, mm. you know, food standards. So, so the company then needs to know exactly who they need to report all of these things to as soon as possible. And let's just say this report came in at seven o'clock on a Friday evening and everybody's gone home mm. and the, um, the inbox that monitors those whistleblowing reports you know is left ignored so that food has gone out over the weekend mm. and you see the kind of catalog of errors yes. that could have happened yes. now i'm absolutely talking in the extreme and my mm. imagination is going wild but you can see the mm -hmm. point that i'm trying to make yes. so yes having the policies is one thing knowing how you're going to embed them and i come back to knowing who's going to be responsible for them is key for me yeah absolutely um, and what about the MAR handbook? Um, if they, if a company has that, do they need anything more? Absolutely, and, and the same principle. And MAR's a really complicated one, covering mm. such a wide range of activities, relating both to the board, PDMRs, their connected persons, and anyone within the organisation who might have access to potentially price sensitive information. The number of stakeholders are high. The implications are high. You know, nobody wants to get a visit from the FCA for getting that wrong. Mm. So again, having the handbook is one thing. Knowing the handbook inside and out, having mm. it embedded within your organisation, having all of the key internal stakeholders knowing what their responsibilities are and when, um, that truly is key. I think um, any organisation needs to have you know, two people as an absolute minimum that understand mm. all of the intricacies so that there's, you know, yeah, a, a deputy yeah. if somebody's not there. But again, having the handbook is great, but knowing what to do with it is even more important. Okay, that's that's really useful to know. And you mentioned earlier about um, investor relations teams. Um, if you have um, an internal investor relations team, um, do you need a specialist on top of that or um, have you got that covered? No, and if you've got an internal invest investor relations team, then that's mm. fabulous. I think oftentimes companies that are going through listing do not have one and um, feel that they can handle um, the remit of the investor relations themselves internally. And that's right. admirable. And I mm. think most people are um, that, that take up that mantle are competent to do so. But I would stress that there's a lot of work that needs to be done alongside the day job. You know, when you think about key um, hot hot spot points where you'd need investor relations, mm -hmm. such as half year end or full year end results, um, investor roadshows, and say, for example, you're the CFO of the company, so you're already absolutely tied up in doing all of the financials of the year end. You know, having to do the investor relations on top of that day job is a significant amount of work. Mm. You know, and I come from um, um, my career, you know, I, I think we didn't really have investor relations when I started, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I certainly wasn't really familiar with them, but now I can really identify investor relations as being a valuable part of a of a listed um, company's team. Mm. Um, that's not to say you need to go out and hire um, expensive 
investor relations companies mm. you know i would say use small consultants because that's that's what i am but you know mm. there are small consultants that are there to help you whilst you find your feet and then you might find actually employing somebody full-time is a more cost-efficient way i think the thing you know with a lot of company secretarial matters it's very mm. cyclical so whilst you might look at the first 12 months ahead of you you know absolutely in shock and horror as mm. one thing after another unfolds itself to you mm. actually once you've done the first year the second year will be very similar to the first mm. year you know you've got the structure in place you know that the, the flesh around it will change but mm. the structure's in place and, I, and i'd like to think that that's a comforting thought for anybody going through their first 12 months post ipo you're talking about things that happen on a regular basis um the annual general meeting um if a company has already has experience of holding those meetings um is there anything different that they need to do um after an ipo yeah and and i always say that agms um in a listed company are a bit like eating uh crap you know maximum effort and minimum pleasure you have to do an <laughs> awful lot of work behind the scenes for an agm yeah. you have to do so much pre preparation for the what if scenario mm. you know let's just even think of preparing the q a's you know what if a shareholder asked this question mm. you know nine times out of ten they won't ask any questions um for me in my career AGMs have been very small, low number of attendee events. I think that might be changing with this more hybrid AGM that we're seeing where the opportunity for shareholders to attend is is a lot higher. So that might change. But yeah, we've got things like um, um, proxy advisors. You've, you've now got a wide number of shareholders that could be national or international. But this is an opportunity for all of them to have their say and so you know whilst um you may be used to holding an annual general meeting your um stakeholders will have increased dramatically mm. you know you'll be working with external company registrars now mm. we'll have to involve them at every step of the process you know we mustn't forget that when we're doing the annual report and accounts the agm documentation will be done alongside that so that they can go in with the same post post bag basically mm. um, so that, that so it might sometimes feel like why are we looking at the AGM so early mm. actually it's because we've got the practicalities of getting the AGM documentation produced and out there with the annual report and accounts you know there are proxy advisors um, people like ISS mm. perk IVIS and they all have their um, views as to how their members should vote um, and I mm. certainly remember the the panic of getting a questionnaire land when I was in-house mm. and you know having 24 hours or whatever to respond and turn that around mm. so there is a lot more work for an AGM and you, mm. you won't necessarily see it in the end product but if you're not prepared it, mm. it's when you're not prepared for an AGM that things go wrong so yeah. it's always worth investing investing the time in it Yes. So you mentioned um, proxy advisors. Um, for companies that might not have come across them before an IPO, um, what are they? Um, who are they and what do they do? Yeah, so they're institutional investor companies, organisations that they do carry significant weight when it comes mm. to directing their members on, on how to vote. Um, some of them, such as the ISS, use a governance quality score to rate companies, which will measure the quality of their corporate disclosures. Mm. Um, you know, you might have heard of red tops. Um, you know, some some work slightly differently, and I won't go through them all now. But yeah. people like that, that um, represent, say, 
all the pension funds um some mm. of them are uk some of them are us but their mm. their voice is absolutely heard by investors we're mm. seeing uh, you know these proxy advisors um reflect what we're already seeing in the corporate governance code and you also mentioned um registrars um what's yeah. their role what do they do so basically when a company has to have a share register and they're private then it's quite easy to handle that share register so who are your shareholders when did they um buy their shares etc that can be done on an excel spreadsheet or on some kind of cosec database when you go listed all of a sudden you have got you might have thousands you might only have hundreds um, of shareholders and they could be all the way around the world and essentially the external registrar keeps all of that information um, in one place it is responsible for things like printing out the um, share certificates and um, it is responsible for keeping all of the um, addresses of the shareholders so when you're doing the report and accounts for example you're liaised with the registrars to make sure that you've got all of the correct um, addresses for the mailing matrix they'll keep hold of the information of who wants hard copy who wants soft copy mm. you'll liaise with them when it comes to dividends and dividend stationery mm. and who's on the register at the point that it's cut for people to get dividends you might have heard of shares trading comdiv or xdiv so mm. actually you'll have quite a close relationship with your registrar and there mm. are a number of external bodies that before you might not have dealt with, but all of a sudden you'll find that you'll need to be, you know, dealing with them on a on a regular basis. Um, and you mentioned also um, reports and accounts. There um, is that process different um, post IPO. Yeah, um, some companies, some large private companies already do glossy report and accounts, um, mm. and some companies, um, you know, like their non-listed company accounts to reflect as much as possible a listed company set of accounts and um, we've also got the weights principles for large private mm. companies so there's a lot more disclosure requirements in them however for a there's no getting away from the fact that for a listed company the the list of disclosures is you know it's in the hundreds mm. and and the annual report and accounts is a vehicle for um showing off those disclosures i love it i love a set of annual reporting accounts i think I, I don't see it as a marketing tool and i know some organizations do but i see it as an opportunity to show off and all the good governance that's done because oftentimes i think a lot of good governance is done it's just that the right people within the company aren't talking to the right other people mm. to find out what is done to then put it in the reporting accounts and i like yeah. you know uniting internal stakeholders getting them to speak to each other and going, oh, okay. So we do a lot of workforce engagement with our board. We didn't realize that we did that. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that, that process can be quite different. It, it can also be quite expensive um, mm. because again, you'll have an external body generally that, that helps you with your design, your project management, the production. You know, if you think of the postage costs alone of mm. sending the report and accounts out, you know, as much as we'd like to see that we're moving towards electronic mm. copies, um, shareholders oftentimes still prefer um, hard copies and I'm a bit of um, I'm a bit guilty for that I've got um, lots of hard copies on my desk I just I find it so handy just to reach out and grab even yeah. though I've got a really high sustainability conscience and feel very guilty yeah. about having the hard copies <laughs> well yes I mean I'm from a publishing background so I sympathize with that you want to go digital but you still quite like a print copy yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um 
taking all these factors into consideration that we've discussed, is an IPO something that you would recommend a company to um, to consider taking on? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, you know a, a career highlight, and certainly for any company secretary. I mm. think like building a house, if you've got your foundations right in the first place, everything else is going to be easier as you go along. You know, understanding what a governance framework actually even means mm. in the beginning is really important. Understanding what what your governance framework is as a large private company, and, and you know are you already compliant as a large private company versus what you will need as a listed company, understanding what that is, um, understanding who your internal stakeholders are and who will have responsibilities, and also having a wider understanding of who your external stakeholders will be, will really set up any COSEC that's about to embark on an, an IPO journey in, you know, in really good stead. But for me, it's, a, it's really positive. And I think once you are in a listed company environment mm. and you know for me i think the cosex the most important person in the whole company mm. um, because you know you really do have the weight of legislation regulation mm. governance best practice on your shoulders you get to to liaise with all of the stakeholders in the organization you know internal and external you know, build really good relationships with the really senior um, members of the company the executive mm. and non-executive directors um and, and and for me it's a really um well i think the role of a cosec is a brilliant one but the role of a cosec in a in a listed company i think is 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 fabulous and whilst it might take you um you know a good holiday in the maldives after an ipo <laughs> to get over it i think it's well worth it <laughs> well that's a really positive note to end on um Karin. i think that this has been a really useful discussion to cover off those points that you might need to take into account before you embark on the journey of an ipo um so thank you very much for your expertise today kerry it's been really insightful not at all, and thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Engage Governance. Look out for more podcasts coming soon. We would like to thank our sponsors and experts for supporting the launch of the Engage Governance podcast series. To access more podcasts and other useful governance tools like our guidance notes, blogs and articles, please visit www.cgi.org.uk.